At the end of your life, what will be your legacy? What will you leave behind for future generations? For the world, join the world messenger, Isabella Lundberg, each week as she brings you a new distinguished guest from the business, sports, or entertainment world to share their success, their struggles, and their lessons. They will share their insights into current hot topics that affect everyone. Isabella facilitates an intimate, vulnerable environment to find the true value of humanity and real leadership. Are you ready for your legacy? The legacy that matters? Hello, hello, it's Isabella Lumbic here, the World Messenger, and I am welcoming you for a special episode on the Legacy Leader Show. I have a very special guest, actually, that is in my neck of the woods here in Denver, Colorado, joining me virtually, of course. Um, amazing background, served in U.S. Army. He is Gulf War Purple Heart amputee. He's a true warrior, athlete, and he is supporting world uh, support. Uh, he's support supporting and part of it of World Finder Sports Ambassador, which we'll ask more my guests all about that. Servant leader, nonprofit supporter, and so many more things. Guys, welcome, Tony Dries. Tony, how are you? Hi, Isabella. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad we finally get a chance to depict some of these uh, things that I just mentioned because this is cute. We're very, very busy and quite a bit accomplished in so many different arenas. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up and how did you get into Army? What made you desire to serve the country, the great country of the United States of America? Great question. Um, those of you that know me know that uh, I was born on an Air Force base. So the military was always part of my um, kind of our, my family's legacy. My granddad was in the Air Force. And then um, my stepdad was in the Air Force. That's how he and my mom met. And so I spent some time in the Air Force um, on various Air Force bases growing up. Um, I was a world traveler as a, as a as a toddler even. Um, I had been to Thailand as a young kid. Um, and then I wound up in Ground Force, North Dakota. And then shortly after I graduated high school, um, I had already had an inkling that I was gonna be in the Army early on. And so as soon as I turned 18, I joined the Army. So you didn't follow the, the, your uh, uh, grandparents, uh, grandfather and father's footsteps to go in an Air Force. Why, why you choose Army from all the different uh, disciplines in military and divisions in military? It's interesting you say that. I was personally driven away from the Air Force. Unfortunately, my experience with my, my stepdad wasn't very positive. And so the last thing I was interested in is following his footsteps. And um, I wanted something a little tougher. I wanted something a little more, I had, I had to be honest, I had some aggression at the time. I had some real um, anti-social behavior that needed some playing out to, to do. And the uh, Army was a safe, um, and kind of constructive venue for those energies. That is very interesting. You also mentioned that because a lot of times when I deal with military, post-military, um, uh, post-deployment individuals, they always say either makes you or breaks you and some individuals really never get out of that. Uh, seems like uh, military serves you well and specifically, Air, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, uh, US Army serves That's you right well. Down. Okay. It did. Um, I was very fortunate. Um, a lot of 
people join uh, military for various reasons. Um, generally, based on my experience and dealing with veterans and, and, of course, being a soldier myself, a lot of them, the number one reason people will join the military is because it's a one-way ticket out of here. Anywhere is better than being here right now, and, and the, the military is a one-way ticket out of here. The other reasons are um, like legacy or specifically for like benefits, education or other benefits. Um, I was fortunate when I, when I did join the army, I had been living with my foster family. And so I actually was enrolled in college first, so I didn't have to join. And so my sense of urgency and my ability to select was different than it might've been had I been, uh, stayed, if I had stayed in my original home, then by the time I, I would have taken anything, I would have taken anything to get out of there at that stage, right? So it worked out in my advantage. I had a pretty high scores. Um, I, I wasn't in a, a panic rush. And so the army worked out for me and um, I was what they called a bonus baby at the time. Fantastic, thank you for clarifying that. And do you mind sharing, Tony, how many years you did, did you serve and to get us a little bit to that pivotal event in Gulf War that changed your life uh, forever? Great question, thank you. Um, actually, as you asked that, um, yesterday is the anniversary, August the 2nd, makes 30 years anniversary of the Gulf War. Um, so the, yeah, so uh, thanks for asking that. It was signed into um, signed into law yesterday. So as you asked that, um, what happened was I was in college and I turned 18 in November. So in November, I went to the recruiter and said, "Hey, I want to join the army. Um, I've always wanted to go." And so I got to select what job I I, I wanted to do, and I picked truck driver. Um, I grew up on a farm in North Dakota, and the truck driving job seemed very much like what we did. Um, the cool thing about it is that you're always moving and you're always kind of on an adventure. So I liked that. And then it also, at the time, it was a very underserved uh, military occupational specialty. We call those MOSs at the time. So they had big bonuses around it. So it was something that was very familiar to me and fun, and they had a lot of money. The only problem was I couldn't go until January and I was still in school. But I had to tell my parents in the meantime that I was dropping out of college. So <laughs> that wasn't I that exciting. They didn't say that very well, huh? They did not, they were not excited by that decision. But I joined the army. I went away to basic in January of 1986. And then I did my basic in AIT in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Um, I invited my mom to come to my graduation where I was uh, one of the honor graduates guys or whatever, and we had a heart-to-heart -heart and helped repair our relationship. And she wasn't mad about me being in the Army. And it's important that, that you know that part of my military story, because my mom was mad at me for joining the Army, right? She had me safe in college, and then I joined the Army, right? And that's, that's her perception. And so we had to get through that, and we got through it early on in my military career. I did four years of active duty in Germany. I had two different duty stations in Germany. Uh, my, my favorite one was 3rd Armored Division. We had a lot of fun, 3rd Herd, in uh, Frankfurt, Germany, um, in a transportation company. I had the most fun that a 20-year-old would ever be allowed to have, ever. Wow. Ever. As a European and knowing where the Frankfurt, Germany is and how it can be amazing and fun, I can, I can just, I can just uh, guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we had a lot of fun in Germany. 
Um, I, I got out of the Army in January of 1990. I did my active four years. I went home to Grand Forks, North Dakota. Uh, the first time I was in college, I was in college as a, a political science major. So this time I went back. My goal was aeronautical studies, and my goal was to become an Army aviator. So I was going to go and get my four-year degree, come back to the Army as a pilot and as an officer um, so I could have leadership. And instead of piloting a truck, which I mastered already, I wanted to pilot something a little more fun. In the meantime, um, I was also on the Collegiate Army Ranger Challenge Team of uh, UND in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Um, and so we had been doing competitions, and we had won state at this time. Um, and then about this time started happening, and uh, the war started. And so I had been out of the Army of my active duty parts, but in the military, when you signed up, you have a inactive reserve portion called the IRR portion. Right, and so when you sign up for four years, then you would, would have a two year of inactive reserve. And so during my two, two years of inactive reserve, the Gulf War started while uh, going to college. I went to the recruiter and I asked if I could go back and, and be with my unit third armor division. And they told us, no, they weren't taking uh, prior service anymore. So I was stuck playing army, what I was calling war games in college when my my brothers, the people that I trained with were over there in the desert. And I, I, I felt, I was high, I felt, man, uh, Isabella, that, I, I felt so desperate. And so like, I know I'm supposed to, like, I, I know that I'm supposed to be a warrior. And here I was, I was stuck in college. I was so, you can't imagine how, maybe you can, but how um, disconnected I was. And I just couldn't make sense of it make sense of what I knew was in my head and in my heart. Like, and I don't want to say even in my visions, but like I see myself as this warrior. I know I'm supposed to do this. And then here it was, um, this was going off and I was here. I was, I was in North Dakota. I was stuck, I felt. And then in uh, January, I got a, a letter from Uncle Sam that resolved all that, all those um, detachment issues for my unit because um, during my inactive reserve, they reactivated me. Myself and several hundred thousand inactive reservists were called back to duty to uh, go to the Gulf War. And wow. so that was January of 1991. Fantastic, I'm glad you clarified that because I was just about to ask, and, and that is a very interesting parallel because uh, uh, that is where I, in 1991, I had a major outbreak in former Yugoslavia uh, of the war and conflict and collapse. And as a civilian, dealt with so many crazy things myself, but then also very quickly with a lot of peacekeepers and different troops and groups uh, from Europe, from Holland, from a lot of Dutch guys, obviously, a lot of um, uh, Brits, not much Brits actually, but a lot of, um, um, there was a later on actually, a lot of guys from US, but anyway, it is just very interesting timelines of, of um, exposure of the world of barriers. So please go ahead. Um, so I uh, got that. So I, I got sent to Saudi Arabia is my duty station. Um, it, I'll tell you that prior to that, it was a very unorganized time. Um, so you, you can imagine I don't know how to describe it, but like if you had like pins on a chalkboard, 
right? A pin's on a map and they were spread out all over. And then you tell them all to be at one place on Tuesday. Right, mm -hmm. and that's what civilians, right? Now part civilians, but part military, right? And so um, it was very, it was abrupt. pretty chaotic. Very abrupt, it was, right? Yeah, it was, it was very abrupt, it's it traumatizing. So for me, you have to understand, so once again, back to my mindset. So we'll talk about my childhood later, but I was, I was bred for this. I'm groomed for this. This is where I'm supposed to go. I'm ready to go. Like I went to sign up, but they wouldn't take me. And now this is my chance to go. Everyone else doesn't feel that way, do they? People that have wives, children, jobs, lives, any other stuff, but this is more taking precedence because we're already at home. We're not uniform in the desert preemptively like we would if we were active duty, right? Active duty, you pack your stuff, you get ready, you deploy, you're there for a while, and then maybe a conflict, however it works out, right? We're civilians today. Tomorrow, we've got to put our backpack back on and go to the desert intentionally. We, it's not maybe war, we know we're going to war. And wow, so, recruiting wow. people and families and major, major disruption. It's like, like being in a war zone for me, like the same thing, you know, you're going to college, you have a great future ahead of you, planning so much, you're young, full of life and ready to tackle the best things. And all of a sudden it's like, cancel, cancel, cancel. And you're in the best shape of your life, right? Like. It, like you, right? You were, you were what, 19? 18, 19? 17, 17, 18, yeah. Right. I was a 23-year-old guy. Military trained. I'm in the best shape of my life. I'm fired up. I'm ready for this. Um, and so to say that everyone wasn't um, excited like I was, there were, that, that's when you find, um, how do you say, the leaks in the dam, the racial dam, the, the racial dam that exists even in the military. Mm -hmm. uh, not more than... At least four, but and so during this time, as we're getting prepared to deploy, they had us at other like army training bases. And so we had drill sergeants over us. Well, some of us are the same rank as drill sergeants or have more time in the army as these drill sergeants, right? And so that created a little <laughs> issue. And the fact that um, racial tension started to break down, right? Like we're waiting for the phone. Waiting for the phone can make someone, right? You can have a a melee and then all of a sudden we what happened downstairs oh so-and-so called so-and-so so-and-so and then all of a sudden now we're picking sides and, and we're all charged we're all 20 something we're all going to war we're all emotionally charged we're all and we're ego like we're we're physical driven not necessarily ego driven but we're action driven we're physical and we we handle things with action right and so it was um it was very unsettling at best to go to war, knowing that we had these unresolved tensions here. Isn't it, isn't it amazing also how it's very present and relevant to current time? We have all of a sudden, over, over the night, a pandemic sweeping in, and now we have everything else uncovered. There's still insane racial prejudice and judgment and polarization and economic downturn and need for survival and different movements and all kinds of clashing at the same time just because again one abrupt uh, point disrupted everything else so i feel like it's a deja vu for both of us experiencing after 
uh, very intense events coming back for second or third time in your our lifetimes for something unprecedented yet for us it's not necessarily unprecedented because we've been there done that it's just a different method but it's the same concept and same scenario isn't it yes and and because of that like you said because we've been there and done there Years ago, I had to make, so I had to develop a process so that I wouldn't think myself crazy, so that I could hold myself accountable to my dreams, because Isabella, as you know, and it's hard to explain it to people, but if you have a life or death, a life-altering trauma at an early age, your ability to think, uh, dream, and even your perspective is forever tainted, and so you can't go back to school and draw rainbows with people, with other kids anymore after you've seen the things that we've seen. And so, so too, does that translate to your dream, right? So like if I dream something, if I tell somebody what I'm dreaming, they will tell me I'm crazy. Well, I, I will be forced to believe them. And so I had to learn how I could uh, manage and still like live up to my own potential by being my best. And so once I figured it out, um, my best is like all military people's is simply an acronym and it helps me stay accountable and know that I'm staying in my lane of my life. Um, and then along the way of living my best, I've come up with a few rules to help keep me on track to make sure, Hey, are you right? To be honest, to check myself. And they're very simply, um, and people that follow me and people that have heard me speak, they're very simple, but they're very difficult to live by. And the first rule... Go ahead, go, go. If you don't mind, just pausing here for a second. I can't wait to hear about your acronyms and how you use those tools to have self-regulation, accountability, but at the same time have a support system. But I, I also want to reflect something you just said. It's very interesting, and I love what, the point where you said, um, when you learn something, you can't undo it. You can't go back. Uh, and, 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 and just propel you forcefully, naturally forward because uh, you know now completely different line of, of work or a line of, of living or being. And, 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 and a lot of times that deviates from your generation or other people's experiences and puts you uh, automatically in different playing field. So it is very hard and challenging later on to find the people that resonate. Uh, with similar experiences and uh, put you in very different perspective because both of us experience same thing, being extremely driven um, and keep propelling, pushing forward while others people have a completely different experiences. They had a meltdowns. Uh, they went into very negative, toxic behavior, self-medication, suicidal, uh, depressing types of thoughts, but yet refused to get any help. And it was just so many different things. And dice, as you can say, you can roll it. Two brothers that served military and being on same events could have a completely two different experiences and as a result, two different outcomes. One committed suicide, the other one um, moved forward and helped others and trying to prevent uh, you know, veterans to uh, commit the suicide. And I see these patterns over and over again. Question it is, what, is the, what was the difference? And, and I love you mentioned mindset, but also accountability and desire to constantly keep pushing forward so you're not trapping on those obstacles and those issues that presents themselves and tempt yourself because it's so easy. 
it's so easy to be complacent. It's so easy to go uh, in a different direction. So please tell me about now acronyms and what was inside of you happening to kept you going and on right track, not to be abuser, alcoholic, or, you know, suicidal, or even to commit suicide. Uh, why was, was not an option for you? I was all those things. Thank you for asking me. Thank you for asking. I was all those things. I um, know, but you had a choice. That's right. You that's right. And, and I, I did. And, and thank you. Um, yeah, um, my beliefs, it was, it was, so the first part of my life I'll share with you. I was born to, to an unwed mother. And I was born back in the 60s. And as I mentioned, her dad and mom were in the Air Force. And so now here's this, this taboo of the family, this new black sheep of the family. And that happened to be me. But my grandmother was very loving. She, she adored me, right? At the same time, they had a child. My grandparents had a child. And they were in their late 40s, right? And so my uncle is literally 16 months older than me. Wow. So that was very handy for me because my grandmother was already in this mode of taking care of babies. So she kind of took care of us together. Um, by the time I was three, I mentioned that my mom met this gentleman in the Air Force. His name was Joe. Um, and Joe came spit polished and clean and in his uniform, bearing gifts and all that stuff. And it was amazing. It was like, oh my goodness. And at the time, um, my, my grandparents were like, good. You got a husband, good, go, you guys go, right? Like you guys do your thing, we'll do our thing. Um, somehow we managed to be stationed at the same next duty station. So I was born in Ohio, then we got stationed in Florida. Um, I don't remember the exact day, but I'm gonna tell you a story that's pretty graphic to me. Um, I, I remember being picked up from preschool. I went to preschool on the bed and Joe picked me up. And I used to, I loved it, right? Sometimes he'd pick me up on his motorcycle. Sometimes he'd pick me up on his car. And he was always would go fast. I'm a go fast guy, right? Like, and so I loved it. I remember he pulled into the carport and he was taking his time coming inside. And I was four. And as any four-year-old does, I was in a hurry to go see my mom. So I run into, to find her and I bust into their bedroom. And my mom's in the bedroom in the middle of the afternoon with no clothes on and she's partially covered up and she says to me is your dad with you that's what i grew up calling him i said yeah he's right there she's like okay go in your room and stay there and don't come out until i come get you and she seemed very panicked and so i go to my room but of course i didn't stay there and so i go and i look through a cracked door and i see this man that i had all this excitement, all this energy. I, I revered this guy. He was supposed to be our salvation, right? He's the one that, that liberated us from crowding my grandparents or whatever our deal was. And he was sitting on the corner of the bed with a stick that he had cut off a tree and had taken the time to skin the bark off it with a knife. And I hear my mom say, can I get dressed and make Anthony lunch or do you need to beat me some more? Oh my goodness. And Isabella, I have to tell you, and then and, and once it was out, it was out. And guess who he was coming for after that? You. So. Wow. You learn at a so very, sorry. very, no, 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 it's that we get to have our own. So 
here's one thing I'll tell you. And I'll, I'm going to tell you some stories about my life, but I want to make sure that, that the audience understands one thing about me. And this is really important. Otherwise, anything that I tell you, you might misconstrue it. And I don't want your pity. I, don't want, your, I want you to understand how my mind thinks. And let me tell you what, why. Nothing in my life has ever happened to me. It only happens through me. And you have to think that through from the time that I started making this, this real for me. I was at a very young age. I remember being in the emergency room at that same year, around four years old. You ever have one of those uh, cowboy belt buckles that have your initials on them? I had one with the, the letter A on it. I'm and familiar then I have one now. Those. We did not grow up with those, but I'm familiar. And, and, and uh, when I came to the United States, very popular, yes. Yeah, I have one now with a T on it. So it's still popular, I trust me. But I remember the day that Joe beat me with mine and the hook stuck in my patella. It stuck in so hard that they couldn't get it out with a needle nose pliers. They had to take me to the emergency room and knock me out to take the belt, my belt buckle out of my knee. I'm four. So what I'm saying to you is not to get anyone's pity, it's to let you know, what do you do when you think you can't go on? What are we talking about, running? Are we talking about losing weight? Are we talking about working at a job we don't care about? What are we talking about? Are we talking about excuses that we can't accomplish our goals in life? Or are we talking about some real stuff? Because if you want to talk about real stuff, you never get to quit that stuff. You don't get to quit. And, 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 and it's also not only that, but that victim, victim, victimization and being in that victim stage uh, or state, and some people stay there for their lifetime. And, and it's a fortunate, and I'm aware of being involved in so many humanitarian efforts internationally, but also nationally, and also around the children abuse and different efforts from human trafficking, to forced labor, to sex tourism, you name it. I mean, very well in tune and aware, and that is something that is very disheartening that um, statistically, as we know, and you experience, unfortunately, firsthand, every time when abuse happens on children usually happens in presence and, and during the time of family members or as a result of family members uh, enabling it. And um, that is disheartening. It is. I am fortunate um, in many ways though, right? I'm so fortunate as you, as you look back, if you look at, if you fast forward my life, I've had 74 surgeries, right? So you think about the, the relationship that I have with pain. Um, or overcoming like, no. adversity, or overcoming adversity, but also uh, always finding silver lining and, and, and reason why. Your why had to be extremely strong uh, to keep you pushing and seeing um, silver lining in all of it, but also yeah. reason why, why would you want to live? Why would you want to live and why, why you keep going? And do you mind sharing what was that breaking point that catch gets you there? Because as they say, if, if something doesn't break you, it makes you stronger. I really can relate to that. And I know you breathe and live and both of us did in a different ways, but I want to ask you, how did you build that endurance? Um, I call it emotional capacity, and which we're seeing right now that a lot of people don't have and they're lacking and their threshold is very, very small. As a result, we're seeing shocking, but yet not shocking type of behaviors, right? 
we, because we understand that of the human nature and as behavioralists from the behavioral standpoint. But also we also see very low threshold emotional intelligence. Super smart people, very intellectually up there, but totally not emotionally available or intelligent about their emotions and internalization and being in touch with themselves. As a result, it's so easy to follow bad guys. It's so easy to do unspeakable. It's so easy to have sheep mentality and not own opinion, right? So what I'm trying to do, and that's why I'm so glad we're having this conversation, what would you say for listeners and viewers that's deep in, in themselves can say, shoot, she's right. I really have a low threshold of all of this. What can I do to get better? How did he endure not only this insane pain, but how he turned that into victory and gain? And how do I build my capacity? What would you tell them? Okay, great question. Okay, so first of all, for building capacity, that part, um, I don't think you get to choose. That's the beauty of life. Like everyone's going to have someone die. Everyone's going to have someone break their heart. Everyone's going to have someone, right? Sticks and stones. That's the beauty of life. That's how you build your capacity, right? And then the chances when you get to test it is, um, man, I, I, I think about how you said that. I, I think it's not that people don't know how to build it. They don't know how to call Like, they don't have a name to call it. Like, they don't know. Like, I got this bucket of me. They stretch this stuff out to be outside of their mold or, or, or believe that they can endure more. And they put in the ceilings of, of trash hold how far they're willing to go or risk it, right? Or, or are we way stronger than we give ourselves credit? But some people will be paralyzed, will never take any chances to even find out. You, you, so you I, know what I mean? I, I have a great example of that. I remember, um, I have two quick stories, real quick. So right before I went to, right before I went and deployed, and I didn't tell you my war story yet. Uh, right before we deployed, um, I was in ROTC, and we were doing this, we were doing this full day of thing that involves swimming, first of all. Uh, if you know me, I don't, they call me Iron Duck. That's one of my nicknames. I don't prefer to swim. I don't like the water. I'm, I'm thick-boned, all right? I'm dense, so I sink. I don't prefer it, right? So we did a bunch of drown proofing and stuff that was really exhausting to me. Later on, we were doing obstacle course, the thing that I loved, and I was kind of slacking. And I had one of the cadet guys, the guy younger than me. I've already done four years in the military at this point. I've already lived my harsh life. And this young college kid says to me, he's like, Dree, he's like, you know, the sad thing about you, you don't even know how strong you are. He goes, you are afraid to like just be beast mode. And so, what happened is I finished the obstacle course, not only the one that I was dogging, I didn't, it never occurred to me that I could go around twice or that I could go around two and a half times before the whole thing was over. And some people hadn't made it around once, but I thought I just had to get it around once, right? And so I, he was giving me permission to use my capacity. And that was very crucial, especially the timing of it, because it was literally two months later when I went to war. And I'll tell you the story, but I, I wind up, being injured where I was amputated and I had to understand my physical capacity. So that was a, a crucial time. Isabella, there's another time that I tell people about it and it's, it's about my no lies rule. I know um, my, <laughs> the hardest story that I tell sometimes is a story about my, my belief and 
the difference when I was given permission again to use all the things that I've been through for my benefit. Mm-hmm. And the way the story went is it starts, I was 13 years old. I was in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and I was in the social services building in the courtroom. I was standing in the back of the court while in the front of the court, my mom and her stepfather, or my stepdad, her husband, and my little brother, who didn't talk about my little brother yet, are sitting in the front row. My mom is standing up telling the court, you take him, I don't want him. I never wanted him. He's ruining my life and he's ruining my family. About me. And I'm standing in the back room. Standing there in front of all these strangers. I'd never been more humiliated in my whole life. All the stuff they did to me, all the beatings I took for her, all the lies I told, all the stigma, all the crap I took at school when other kids know, or all the crap when I didn't know if they knew, but I thought someone knew or whatever, and that's what I got to hear. And so I remember I was 13 years old, 12 and a half, almost 13. It was almost my 13th birthday. I remember very distinctly the feeling, they were huge, hot tears, they were burning my face. And I remember I was standing at the, the emergency exit, of, oh, it was a glass emergency exit, it was on the third floor, and the, it, the uh, stairway is black. And the reason I know that is because I was so tired of this nonsense. And I would jump out, but at age almost 13, I knew I'm too tough. I won't even die. That won't even kill me. And the pain I'm trying to escape, I'll just make it worse for myself. That's what I thought. It was exactly that second that my adoptive mom spun me around and we were nose to nose. And she said these words to me and I've said them to as many people as I can share them with. I'd like to share them with you. Please. Okay. She said, Tony, I heard what they said to you and I know what they've done to you as well. She goes, from this point forward, whether it's true or not, it's totally up to you. You never have to answer to them again. You only have to answer to you. So whatever you're going to be now is up to you. They have no more say in it. She goes, life is not fair. The good thing is, life is not fair. So it's up to you. And from that day to this day, like, if you've known me, like, people have known me, they've been like, you've always been like that. Yeah, because I have permission to be, I, I was given permit. like, instead of, I was beat down and punished, and they tried to break my spirit, and they tried to break my flesh, and they, they did unspeakable things to me, and said unspeakable things to me for being me. And then as soon as I was given permission, I never let anyone put me back in that box again. And so that's beliefs. That's how strong your beliefs are. When they were telling me the, the, the negative stuff, I was always the bad kid. I was always in the principal's office. I was always getting expelled. I was always in trouble. Always, always, always. Because they were, uh, Isabella, what I tell people is, whatever you swim in, you're going to get in your mouth. So if you swim in a sewer, guess what you're going to get in your mouth? So I try and swim in only clean water, positive water, good water, high energy water, right? And so when you change your beliefs, then your results can't help but to change with you. And so that's why the, the best part of best, the most important part that I hold myself accountable for before I do anything else as a salesman, as a father, as an educator, as a person going out to represent this country 
check up from the neck up. How's my mind? This six inches can make or break. Are we going to make the journey or not? It's determined by this six inches first. And then once you've got that. Absolutely. That is very powerful. So we got to your acronym of VEST. So you covered belief. And I'm really eager to hear what E stands for. E is, it's, it's, there are multiple words, but it's really about engagement. It's your action. Once you have your head together, guess what? Now what, right? Anytime that you want to make a change, or especially when you're forced to make a change, we run into people all the time that we coach and they're like, ah, I don't know what to do. And we're seeing that right now in our culture. Like even our leadership is, okay, we want to respond. We need to respond. We just don't know how. And as a result, everyone becomes catatonic. And so the other E for engagement is it's really expert engagement. Do what you're good at for blah, blah, blah. Do what you're good at for veterans. Do what you're good at for Black Lives Matter. Do what you're good at for whatever, right? Whatever it is that you're trying to change in the world, it doesn't start by all of us trying to be the other side of the coin. Certainly, if you have some research to do, if you have some re-education to do, I implore you to do it. And at the same time, what you're really good at, do that for the good of humanity. And so that's the, that the E. That is beautiful. Yeah. I love it. Okay, yeah. get us to the S. The S is strategy. And, and then there's two, of course, is strategy and sustainability. Yeah. And so here's what I'll tell you. Wouldn't it be cool if, yeah, that's a dream, right? If you say in 2022, I'm going to see in the winter. Oh, now that's a goal, right? And if you say the way I'm going to do it, is every morning at 4 a.m. I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna eat like this and I'm gonna work and that's a plan. When you use your plans and your goals to accomplish your dreams, that's your strategy, right? And especially when you do it with intention. We do so many things to just see. Well, we'll see. Don't do stuff with we'll see because who's gonna take care of us later? In my case, in your case, we're orphans. Who's gonna take care of us? So the things that we do now that we enjoy doing, that we have the energy to do, um, I have a thing that when we get to time called front loading, but do them more now in a way that will help you when you can't do them so much. And so that, that has a lot to do with your strategy. Are you doing it for now? I did that a lot, right? And you need to understand in my life, I've done a lot of things. Um, one of my strategies, I'll, I'll tell you, I've always believed in fitness and good health, right? I've been in amazing health. I've, I've worked out, I've had my own weight since, since I was 10. Well, it was a survival mechanism for me right away, right? Like survival of the fittest, right? But then it turned into this getting thing of its own. And then also getting more powerful so that you can withstand attacks yeah. from, your, from your stepdad. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then not, don't forget about school. Um, at this time, you got to know I'm in rural Midwest. And in my school, many times, I'm the only black person in the school. Um, and certainly always in, in my own class. Um, during these, this time, I was also put in special education because as I'm having these issues in my home, what do I do? Just keep them bottled up? No, I'm this beast. And so I'm a beast around these kids. And so as a result, the school has me in special ed, right? And so I remember I'm being fed this 
from all these corners. Portrayed, uh, you portrayed something that they feared, right? Because they, they didn't know how to relate, didn't know how to engage you. You, you were not something that are very familiar or accustomed to. And it's That's unfortunate. Right. So it seems yeah. like you had so many layers and complexities in your upbringing and your life and throughout your life, actually, um, as a black person, as a, as a, as a uh, family dynamics exposing, since like that the cards you've been dealt with are very, very um, challenging, but seems like you played very well though where you are today. So kudos. Yeah. Thanks, thanks. Um, I don't think anyone gets to choose the cards. No one gets to choose the cards. I, I always say, but when we land some jokers, oh my God, isn't that amazing? It's like, oh my God, finally a little break. Woo! I get a little break. Or I get a little extra fast forward. I don't have to do it all the bloody, sweaty, uh, slowly and on my own by myself. I, I totally get it. Yeah. And, and then I get this the gratitude, right? Like the gratitude, that, that gets me to time. Um, mm. When you spend time, locked up, which I did as a youth, I, I was locked up a couple times during those transitions. And then I was a little bit, uh, I told you, I, I had, I was the bad guy. And so literally I actually got caught up in some, some nonsense and I took the rap for it. Um, my buddies, there were these kids that, they were the lawyer's kids, the doctor's kids, the guy that owns the Dairy Queen's kids or Burger King's kid or whatever. And I had this history, we were riding around doing the stuff we shouldn't be doing. And I wind up uh, spending some time incarcerated in between my uh, junior and my senior year. Mm. And so it really changed. Uh, so I had gone from this awful, awful background that I, I prayed for. And so I hit the lottery when I got to go to my foster home, right? I got to go to this. This was like the lottery. There was a TV show out um, at the time called... Um, Anyway, it was about the Drummonds, but these black kids got to go with this rich guy in a penthouse. They hit the, like, I used to watch this as a kid, like, man, who I got that. I got that. And then I was messing up and I got incarcerated as a junior, as a minor, right? I went to this uh, state industrial camp for boys. And what I didn't know, and this is it's important that I, they told me this at the end. So this is in the western part of the state. It's even less populated by black people. So the, the, the differences and the racial differences, it was high. The rule was you couldn't get in trouble. It was a 60-day evaluation. If you didn't get through it without trouble, then they could keep you there until your uh, 18th birthday. I think you heard me tell you earlier, I was already out of high school and in college for a while before my 18th birthday, and then I went in the Army, right? I would have been in jail that whole time. So I had a couple of scuffles, but at the end, when my foster parents and I were sitting there and they, the, they were doing my review, I didn't know this, and I want you to know this was important to me, about gratitude. <laughs> the guy said to my parents, said, well, you know he likes to fight. <laughs> so that's not a good start, right? Like, I'm like, oh, you knew about that. How do you guys, I guess you guys saw those, right? And so they kind of, they put their heads down a little bit. Said, but did you also know that the people in the kitchen, the plumber, the maintenance guy, the janitor, the whomever, the whomever, all said that he's the most polite and most charming young man they've ever met. What I didn't know, Isabella, is that 
the, the place was remarkably understaffed. There's a remarkable glaring lack of staff there. Yeah, that's because all staff members vote on your behavior. So when you think you're messing around and the guy's over here cutting the grass, he sees you, he knows who you are, he votes on your file. And I was ever grateful that I was always, yes, sir, no, sir, please and thank you to those people. I showed genuine respect to those folks and it helped me. Um, it matters in terms of time because it cut my time, but also it, it let me know to, there's been times in my life where I really have been isolated. I've been in the hospital probably a total of, I've had 74 surgeries. Wow. So, that is that's, uh, yeah, and so I literally had to be stuck there. Just that's it. And times hooked up to stuff, and my arms hooked up, elevated, whatever, and you're just stuck. And so I was very grateful that I've had a very adventurous life and a very active and vivid imagination. So, like, you take a lot of photos. I take those same photos with my eyes and with my mind. And it helps you at many times to go back and go, man, that was a dumb mountain bike ride. And then when you're laying up and you can't move and you're incapacitated, you're like, man, remember that time you jumped and the front wheel came off your thing and you went over the handlebars? I would trade that pain for this pain he did, right? It's, and it's those little things that give you that glimmer of hope. You're going to the photographic memory. You're going back to the memory line and, and photographically relive that that helps you to cope with the current situation. Yep. That is very powerful. Not many people can do that. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. But, but then once you know you can, then you can. And if someone shows you how, then you can. I, I feel that um, life should be driven much like your car, with mm. a huge windshield and a small rearview mirror. And you have to be careful in the rearview mirror because those objects are closer than they appear. They're right here. They're like literally right behind you. So don't look back at those. Look where you're going. That's why you got a big windshield and a small mirror. And sometimes we spend so much time in that, in that back seat in the, in the past that we can't really do anything about. Nor, we can't change it. We can't. Or we, we think we can't, right? Or we believe yeah. that we can't and then, then self-sabotage and never really try and never push forward and never press forward. Which right. brings another very good point, uh, if you don't mind, how this... Uh, being the best after you got amputation, went through 74 surgeries. Good Lord. Uh, you end up uh, being as a world professional amputee athlete. It's a lot of fun. Um, so we'll, we'll finish up real quick. I, I go to Saudi Arabia, right? Um, we're deployed. My job is we drive uh, blacked out fuel tankers, blacked out Mercedes Benzes full of jet fuel from the rear to the front lines because the tanks, the Abrams tanks, run on jet fuel. Mm -hmm. That's my job. Wow. It's a cool job. High risk job also. Very risky. Yeah. Uh, very low what we call life expectancy. So every task in the military has a, an assigned index. It's called the life expectancy index. It's done in minutes of how long, how many minutes your military occupational specialty would keep you alive in a certain job during the event of war. Most, like an infantryman, it's about 13 minutes. Ours was like a minute 27. 
Wow. That is shocking. Cool. I mean, not surprised, but at the same time puts things in perspective how high risk it is. That's not what got us though. Um, man, we were sitting in our barracks the very first night and all of a sudden we hear this air raid siren. You know the ones that I'm speaking of, the high air raid siren. And so we close the doors, we grab our helmets and we hear this and then all of a sudden we hear, Isabella, we hear, we're sitting here, like literally cowering. And then we hear, kaboom. And so what happened, let me dissect all these noises that we're sitting here cowering. What happened is we have an incoming scud. We have Patriot batteries. There's three of them around us. And they shoot at this thing. All of them take a shot at it. They hit it. And then the next thing you hear is, like the raining shrapnel on the metal of the building, and we're sitting here underneath this thing. That and was the first night. raining on you. That was the first night. That happened every night. On the ninth night, we were playing football. Hear the air raid sirens. The sergeant yells, close the door, close the door. So from where I was, um, for me to grab my helmet, my helmet was on the other side of my cot. So I had to lean over my cot and get my helmet. By the time my hand touched it, I'm expecting to hear those All I feel is this amazing concussion. I can't put it into words. Um, if you've ever, like, I, don't, I don't wanna be that graphic. It was just so concussive that I think I felt it more than I heard it. It knocked me off my feet. And as I shake my head and look, where I saw fluorescent lights before, I could see the stars. Wow. The wall that I was standing next to, there was a pile of rubble here and you could see outside. There was smoke, ash, carnage, people screaming, torn metal, concrete. It was, they got hit by a Scud missile. It was called the deadliest Scud missile of the Iraqi war. 28 people died, eventually 29 people died directly from that and over a hundred of us were injured. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was, um, it was February 25th, 1991, in Daharan, Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia, not in Afghanistan, or I mean, not in other, uh, wow. That is, wow. Where you Crazy. think about it, it's like the least expected, right? That's why you guys probably were even looser and more unprepared and because nobody expected it's going to be missiles there. We had them every day. We thought we had it handled, right? Like, yeah, we, were, we had them every day, nine days in a row. <laughs> I mean, someone gets lucky eventually, right? You can do something nine times, you're going to get it one time, right? Um, so from there, I got to test my, my best, didn't I? I got to test my beliefs. All the other stuff that people were, that would say was insurmountable for me or unbelievable for me, it paled now. All that stuff didn't matter, did it? Um, my ability to manage my pain, manage my emotion, manage my, my, um, my will. Abilities and, and, and living as an amputee. So one of your legs is being amputated, if you don't mind, just for the listeners and our audience to hear it. And that is very challenging for someone who is so independent, who is driven, who is athlete, and now all of a sudden you're stuck with this new body and new ways of being. Let um, me throw one more at you, Isabella. They told me four different times they were going to amputate my leg. 
I told him no. I didn't get my my leg amputated until 2018 in February. Wow. So you prolonged it and, and used it as much as you could till you really, really had to, huh? I finally got cancer in it because, right, I got cancer in my war wound and who can do it, right? But uh, the doctors told me repeatedly that I was going to cut, my, they were going to cut my leg off. And first of all, you should know that I wasn't taking medicine. I got blown up by a bomb and they were trying to give me morphine and stuff. It was finally on day four. They said, we can't, uh, your body can't heal and we can't get you out of Saudi unless you take some kind of medicine. That was the only way I took anything. So then when I finally got to, um, yeah, so I, I was at a point. That, um, so this is in Walter Reed. They're telling me they're going to cut my leg off and I was weaning myself off medicine. I was like, nope, you're not doing it. So like, and so fortunately, um, the top guy was in there and he was kind, he was empathetic. He goes, hold on. And there's four doctors in there. And the top guy said to me, he goes, why not? I said, cause I made up my mind. I'm going to keep it. He thought about it and he goes, what do you want us to do? I said, tell me what to do. He thought about it. He goes, therapy helps. He goes, but you're in for a lot of surgery if you do this. I said, I got it. He said, okay. He left the room. 58 surgeries and nine months later, I jogged out of the hospital on both legs. And People Magazine called me a medical miracle. Wow, amazing willpower, amazing perseverance. Uh, fortunately, I'm sad to hear that you on the end catch the cancer, had to amputate it. And now you fully adopted uh, as amputee, obviously. Uh, but do you mind just telling me how you transition and then how you became uh, and continue to be athlete, but with a new body, with the new restrictions or a new strengths actually in the same time? It's beautiful. Um, I, I call myself very fortunate, Isabella, because if I had got myself amputated back then when the doctors told me, I was 23 years old. One day I'm in college minding my own business, the next day I'm hit with a bomb and I get my leg cut off. No one's prepared for that. And that's what the military is. And, and I can accept that. Um, I didn't tell you that during those 27 years, no one knew that I was hit with a bomb. I was 200 some pounds when I was 37. I bench pressed 500 pounds. I ran half marathons. I did whatever I, like no one knew. Only if you had to know me to know, no one could tell that I was hurt. Um, and then finally, uh, after my 30th year high school reunion, I felt myself losing weight and whatever. And it was really hard. I, I fought it as long as I could fight it. Like I really, I spent two, two and a half years fighting the unknown. I had bone infection. I had blood infection. Then finally I had cancer. And then we had an operation. Then we had cancer. So I, I had like eight more surgeries in my late 40s. And then finally, um, right after I turned 50, um, in February of 2018, I made this, this, the decision the second time the cancer tumor came back that I had to, like, I got to get it done. Um, the type of cancer it was would monastitize itself in my lungs and abdomen. And there's no, like, that's not even a, a question. That's and not an option so, for you. It's very recent adjustment then. And, 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 and you obviously, with your attitude and aptitude, handling that extremely well. Um, but I was lucky, the, the thing I was going to share with you is that I was fortunate because I got to get my mind around it, right? Like I had some time, and even that was still a hard transition, right? Um, I went through, I, was, I had some anger that I worked through that I didn't know I was having, rightly so, and whatever else, but I, it was a tough transition. 
grievance it's very normal because you're grieving for the for yourself for your old self for your new self for all of those things that are changing and it's a natural process to be in touch also emotionally what is happening with you yeah and and the way the medical thing was treated if you know back in 2016 um, a lot of our veterans from afghanistan were coming home i was in my late 40s and i hadn't been to the doctor in years i was in perfect shape yeah my my primary care at our at our hospital retired so i had no primary care and i got sick at the same time there was a backlog in our hospital do you understand that and so now i was stuck being treated and being leftover handled by civilian doctors that don't understand blast wounds don't understand right and so the, my care really predicated a lot and so I'm, I'm dealing with this and dealing with i got cancer i'm having surgery right like i'm dealing with all this stuff but uh i i was fortunate because i'm trying to live my best and that i get to keep my rules hey man i had 27 years of like like i body modeled some right like i, I got to do everything and I got to raise my kids. I got to blah, 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 blah. And I got to prepare. I got to pick my own service dog and train her. Like all these things that I got to do so that when I went to the hospital where they told me it would probably take me a year to recover, especially given my age, I was out and I was traveling and speaking four months and two days later. Wow. Wow. So it's interesting also how these events prepared you to be able to handle that news and the new situation in such a positive light, but also show the power of endurance, perseverance, positivity, and in the same time, uh, how much we're in control and how much we can truly uh, push our body beyond what we ever thought is possible, our mind, our emotions, our spirit. So that is, that is very, very powerful. So Tony, do you mind sharing for, with the audience that followed, listened, and heard this piece of information? Uh, wh what are you up to now? Where's your passion? What are you doing currently? I know you're volunteering, serving, and helping others, veterans specifically. I know you're involved in, in um, uh, sports as an athlete and, and sports ambassador. Uh, but do you mind just telling me wh what is the next, what is coming? What, what, what would you like your legacy to be in this new chapter of your life? Thank you for asking that. That's a great question. Um, I want my legacy to be of one that used his life to help others heal. Um, I believe that pain shared is pain divided. Um, and so I really believe that. So I, meant, I, I truly believe that every person that hears any portion of my story that helps them, then whatever initially hurt me didn't hurt me because it helped us. So I'm cool with it. I'm, I'm good with it. And I already made it through. So these are bonuses for me, right? These are all bonuses. Um, but I want my legacy to be one that I, I made a difference in accessibility. Like I was a beast mode when I was walking around for almost for 50 years, for half my life. Now I'm gonna spend the other 50 of my life being a beast mode in terms of a champion, um, a champion for accessibility, a champion for inclusion, a champion for everybody, right? Diversity right now, everybody for change, for transformation, but we're right. actually kind of spontaneously and simultaneously going through this right now, right? right. In, in and it's perfect. Served with so much heart and passion now the needs different types of service 
to overcome issues and that we're experiencing. Yeah. That is and it really fell in my hand. It, it fell in my lap, right? Like I, I was minding my own business. I was being an athlete because it helped me heal through my surgery, through my transformation. It helped me see what the new me is going to be like. I, like the new normal thing that people are using, that word makes me chuckle because every day when I open my eyes, I'm like, let's go see. Let's go see. And I need you to know, and I want your listeners to know, I know I don't want to see it too long in case I don't want to bore anyone, but I want you to know that when I was going through my, my surgery, um, if you look on my Facebook, um, and please put it on there, Isabella, um, you'll see the very next day I was up hopping around the hospital. But what I want you to know is this was also transformative for me in my entire life, because I said, I remember saying to my Lord, I was like, what will you have me do? Just show me what it is. I said it. I, I literally, and I told my kids, I told people around me, I'm like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm not scared. Whatever it is, it's going to be fun. Ready and to then, serve. Ready to serve. And then they gave me sports. Oh, God, thank you. That is a good one, man. You could have given me politics or anyone, right? Or law or something that is awful. But he gave me sports. Oh, thank you. And so now I get to be, I'm an adaptive skier. Um, I'm a gold medal powerlifter. I'm a gold medal wheelchair racer. And as a Warfighter Sports Ambassador for Move United Sports. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Yeah. So I get to go around and share sports with people, um, disabled youth, um, veterans that are injured, ill, or have some kind of uh, wounds, and get to take them and let them have the same access to um, the adventures and the joy that I get from sports. At the same time, Isabella, I'm going to be candid and transparent in saying it's my way of hailing the community because Absolutely. Um, sports unifies everybody. Yes, it does. We, one of the four things that I always preach about the way we connect around the world globally and definitely in our country is through music, through sports, through film and food. Mm -hmm. And uh, right now, I think it's a great platform, specifically sports, because all of us um, either are part actively participating or love to watch. And, and it's a beautiful way to build the communities and make us stronger and integrate communities in a ways that is um, definitely pushing us forward in, in a new light. And positivity. And remember what sports teaches us resilience, teamwork, problem solving, right? Like, and, and so that stuff, um, there's, if I don't make, get me into it, but there's over 2 million children, school-age children that don't even have access to sports in their school. They don't have gyms. And then imagine if you're disabled. Now you're in a, you get leftovers of society anyway, and sports is the first thing to go, the last thing to trickle down. And so while we're going through social isolation, that's what we as disabled people live every single day. Not just that during pandemic, like my, now most of us are recognizing seen as a problem. And I also love that you're working on that because I still see disability being something that society shuns, doesn't fully embrace and accepts and not, does not fully integrate. It's a lot of discrimination around it. And on top of it being black, it's a lot of discrimination. And on top of it, that being homeless or being um, you know, in foster home or being neglected. So those are the vulnerabilities. And as an educator, it breaks my heart to see how many people go to 
insane, significant um, pain on all levels. But I'm also glad that you're using sports as an outlet and engagement through it to really develop that emotional capacity we were talking about and intelligence and strength and positivity instead of just a physical aspect. So which is, of course, very, very important, but that emotional intellectual as well. Brilliant. Brilliant. It was absolute pleasure to talk to you. I know we just scratched the surface here, but um, dear listeners and people watching, um, I just want to let you know this will be continue. We'll have him back in a, down the road and hear where he's at. But right now, we just want to really thank you for your time. 